Welcome to the In Doubt Podcast, where we explore the challenging topics that young adults often face. Each week, we talk with guests who help answer questions of faith, life, and culture, connecting them to our daily experiences and God's Word. For more info on In Doubt, visit indoubt.ca or indoubt.com. This is Courtney, and I'm really glad you're joining us for another episode of In Doubt. On today's episode, Joshua has the chance to talk with author and editor Drew Dick. Drew has recently written his latest book, Your Future Self Will Thank You. Talking about self-control, habits, goals, and willpower, Joshua and Drew discuss how finding a firm foundation in the Lord can ultimately help us in all of those areas. So I hope that you enjoy this episode with Joshua and Drew Dick. Hey, welcome to In Doubt. My name is Joshua and I'm your host today. Sometimes I'm sure you've felt this because I've felt this. You tune into a podcast and you think, you know, this maybe isn't particularly that interesting to me or it doesn't really apply to my life as much as I was hoping it would. Well, you know what? Today is going to be a podcast where you can't say that because we're having a conversation about self-control. And as our guest today has argued in his book, self-control is critically important in the life of a Christian. In fact, unless you're a self-controlled person, you, you cannot glorify God in the way that we ought to. And so I'm really excited to have this conversation. And I hope as you're listening, you're thinking, okay, actually, this is, this is something I need to think about and I need to work on. So I'm really excited uh, to welcome Drew Dick to our podcast. He's uh, an editor uh, at Moody Publishers. He's also a writer and an author. And, and he most recently wrote his book, Your Future Self Will Thank You, Secrets to Self-Control from the Bible and Brain Science. So Drew, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I am really excited for this conversation. Grateful for the opportunity. Awesome. Awesome. So I wonder if we could start by just getting you to share a little bit about yourself, where you're from, what you do, and and how you came to know and love the Lord Jesus. Sure. Yeah. I was um, born and raised in central and northern Alberta, and my dad was a pastor of uh, of various churches um, in Alberta, and so grew up in the church. Uh, And then when it comes to my own faith journey— you know, I, I like to joke that after wandering in sin for years, finally at the age of five, I broke down and accepted Jesus into my heart. Um, but uh, so it wasn't like a super long journey. But really, I was kind of riding the coattails of my parents when it came to my relationship with God, uh, at least until high school. And that's when I really started reading the Bible for myself, in particular, the Gospels. And that's really when I was just compelled by the person and the teachings of Jesus uh, I, I feel like I really fell in love with them at that point, um, and the faith truly became my own. And, you know, since then, my I feel like my call is to work with words, which is a little odd, but sometimes that's editing other people's stuff. Sometimes that's writing my own articles and books, because uh, I, I believe that God is still changing people through the medium of the written word. <laughs> and so I know that he's certainly done that in my life. And so that's kind of what I do every day. Cool. Very cool. So, well, I mean, the, the first thing that sticks out to me there is that you were born and raised in Alberta. Yeah. That's fantastic. So I, I was raised in <laughs> Jasper, Alberta, out in the Rocky Mountains. Oh, nice. So wh- yes. where, whereabouts in Alberta? So I, um, well, I was born in a little town called Eiley, which okay. is just like yep, teeny, teeny. But I spent most of my uh, childhood in Red Deer, Alberta. Okay. Well, for, first I was in Fort McMurray, which is like yep. super far up in the bush. Uh, and then uh, when I think we were like when I was five or six, moved to Red Deer cool. and lived there until I was 22. Right on. Uh, so I am in the States now. I've been south of the border for like 18, 19 years. 
And so when I come home to Canada, my friends make fun of me for my American accent. Uh, <laughs> one of them said I sound like a Southern politician. Right so on. That was a compliment. Hey, that's exciting. <laughs> Very cool. So, so Drew, I'm wondering, I wonder if you could share with us what, what sparked in you the desire to write a book about self-control, because that seems like a, a daunting task. Sure. Yeah. And I wish I could say I was drawn to the topic purely out of academic interest. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. Uh, this is a good topic to address. <laughs> the truth is that this is an area in which I realized I had room to grow. Um, and, you know, and so initially, actually, I was reading up on this topic, reading some secular books, Christian books about it. And I wasn't even thinking of writing my own book. I was actually just researching for myself. And I don't know how far I was into it, a few books and articles, and all of a sudden I realized, I wonder if some of the stuff that I'm discovering could be helpful to other people. And so it kind of morphed into a book project. Uh, but like you said at the outset, I, it, I think I was drawn to it too, just because it's so crucial to the Christian life, right? You can't really lead a wholly healthy life without this crucial virtue of self-control. So I wonder if you could help us just define our terms. When we're talking about self-control, uh, what are we talking about? Because immediately my first thought is is my ability to not take that cookie from the cookie jar. Uh, right. is, is that self-control right. or is there more to it? I think that's part of it, but I think there is a little more to it. And I define it pretty simply as the ability to do the right thing, even when you don't feel like doing it <laughs> or something like that. Um, and so, yeah, this this ability to, and sometimes that means resisting doing things that you shouldn't, right? Certain temptations come along and you don't take the bait. You don't eat the cookie. You don't, you know, whatever it is. Um, and sometimes it's just kind of silly stuff like, oh, I shouldn't eat another cookie. Or sometimes it's a little more serious when it gets you into the sinful territory. Um, and then on the other hand too, it's doing the things that you should do that, that you don't want to do, right? And so it, you can see how it impacts so much of our lives just those things. And, and then, of course, there's another element to this for us Christians. It's not just all on us. It's not just our own grit and determination that determines our self-control, because it is, of course, called in Scripture, a fruit of the Spirit. So that means God, in some mystical way, is empowering us to live a life of self-control. And that's good news to me, that it's not all on me. It's not just my own sheer willpower that's going to get the job done. Uh, but it's actually God's spirit enabling me, empowering me to live the Christian life. Mm, very cool. Yeah, no, I, I, uh, I've just been invited to preach a couple times at a church. And so we're going through Titus chapter 2, verse 11 to 14. And he says how grace that has appeared is training us to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives. And I was just thinking exactly what you were just saying there, how, how the grace also moves us to, to think about Okay, now I'm moving away from the sinful things, but I'm moving toward uh, upright and godly living. This being self-controlled, being something not just in the negative, but the positive. So I think that's actually really helpful. So you've, you've mentioned this, but could you fill it out a little bit? Why is self-control so important? Like, why is this a critical, why, you, you called it crucial. Why is it crucial? Yeah, in a few ways. Uh, you know, this kind of got on people's radars back in the 1960s when there was that famous experiment I think a lot of listeners have probably heard of called the marshmallow experiment. And basically what they did was kind of a cruel test. They put marshmallows or other tasty treats in front of preschoolers and told them, if you, you can eat the marshmallow now, or if you can wait 20 minutes, we'll give you two marshmallows. <laughs> right? Right, right. And so they were, they were trying to test their, their ability to delay gratification. And as you can guess, most uh, uh, preschoolers, these are like, what, three- and four-year-olds did not do very well and <laughs> right. ate the marshmallow right away. Yeah. Um, 
And so that was somewhat interesting. But really, the big takeaway came years later when they tracked down these same kids that had participated in the study and saw their life outcomes. The ones that were able to delay gratification the longest had all these positive life outcomes, better grades, less use of drug and alcohol, better relationships, uh, better careers. I mean, right across the spectrum of their lives. Uh, and of course, the opposite was true of the ones that just jammed the marshmallow in their mouth right, right, right. right away. And so that was a revelation for a lot of people because they had assumed up till that point that IQ was the determining factor in your life, right? If you had a high IQ, if you're a smart person, naturally things are going to go well for you. Other people thought maybe it was self-esteem that we needed to, okay, we just need to tell people how awesome they are and things and they'll behave better. But this kind of said, you know what? What's more powerful is our self-control, our ability to say no to the things that we that we want to that actually determines things. So just from a natural perspective, self-control is incredibly important. Uh, and it does seem that some people have naturally higher levels and other people have lower levels. And that was kind of scary for me because I knew I was probably in the camp of the lower level self-control. Uh, and yet the good news is, and, and the, the research has borne this out, I think in Scripture we see this over and over again with characters in Scripture, your self-control can grow, you know, by God's grace and by your own commitment to be obedient to God uh, and to grow in this area, you can see real progress. So that was the encouraging thing to me. Mm, that's good. So, so you just said there uh, how they, they were thinking about IQ as being the defining factor for, um, for success in the future. Nowadays, the conversation is, is all about EQ, right? Your emotional intelligence. Right. So, right. so would you say that, that even self-control steps even above EQ in defining somebody's success? That's interesting. I haven't seen like a direct comparison in the literature. And I actually guess that EQ and self-control are intimately related. And let me explain what I mean by that. That is, self-control is a very interpersonal virtue. That is, it, it's crucial for um, harmony between people. I think that's why it's listed, you know, as one of the fruit of the Spirit, because you've got kindness, gentleness, joy, you know, all these things that we really need to get along with one another, right? And, and EQ is your, your ability to relate to people well and in healthy ways. And the thing about self-control, like it, it, you always, to exercise self-control, you have to suspend your own selfish, destructive impulses and put others first, right? That's kind of the perennial challenge. And if you can do that well, I think if you can do that well, it's going to go better for you, not only personally, but for your relationships as well. Mm, that's good. I, yeah, it's a, that's an interesting thought. I, it almost seems you think about IQ and EQ, uh, and, and you might be good at both of those. If you don't have self-control, it really doesn't matter at the end of the day. Mm. Right. Here's a question. When we're talking about self-control, and particularly, let me use my, my illustration of reaching in and grabbing that cookie. Um, what is the obstacle that I'm actually trying to get over? What am I fighting against in order to actually do the thing that I want to do. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, in the case of a cookie, I think it's, a, it's pretty clear because your brain is in survival mode and it's saying, if I can get sugar or fat, and say there's chocolate chips in there, uh, so you get a little bit of fat too, um, that's a good deal for your brain because your brain is a calorie hog. It burns a quarter of your body's calories, even though it only comprises maybe 3% of your body's weight. Um, and so it wants the calories. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, the bad thing is when it's already had enough calories and it hasn't hit that shutoff. Now there's a part of your brain too, the, the prefrontal cortex, that is sort of the executive function that's supposed to say to the other parts of your brain, hey, listen, you've had enough. 
and we need to shut it down, <laughs> right? And so in a way, your brain is in a battle with itself. Um, and and self-control in that instance uh, involves, you know, exercising your prefrontal cortex, or if we put it, you know, in terms uh, that we understand consciously, it's it's your, your will to override that impulse and say, no, I've had enough. This is actually going to hurt my health <laughs> or make me feel sluggish or whatever the case is to say no to that cookie. So that's what's going on. And, you know, it's interesting because self-control is important for those kinds of decisions, which do matter in our lives, right? If you consistently eat the extra cookie or the, have a second bowl of ice cream or whatever it is, or, or, you know, take down a full bag of Doritos, which I'm ashamed to say I've done. Um, <laughs> uh, over time, you know, that's not going to go well for you. It's going to hurt your life and your health, and it can even, even qualify as gluttony in some cases. Um, and then there are other issues where it's clearly sin, right? Where it's, you know, say you're looking at a sexually illicit image, or you are gossiping about someone, or you're cheating on your taxes. You know, all these other things, they take self-control as well. But I would say not in every case, like some people have asked me, is every self-control failure a sin? Not necessarily, right? Because if you eat the cookie instead of the kale, it just means your, your taste buds are functioning properly. Um, <laughs> yeah, you don't want to do that every time. Right. Uh, but then, so, so in those cases where, you know, self-control is still at play just to make decisions that are healthier, but then sometimes it gets really important, you know, to be faithful in your marriage, to be honest and virtuous and live the Christian life and become the kind of people that God wants us to be. So, so when I was reading your book, every chapter, there was, there was something that jumped out to me that I thought, man, this is something that I would love to talk about because I think it's so important. As every chapter, there was something that built upon something else to say self-control washes over our entire lives. We've got to think about it. Um, in so many different ways. But I wonder if you could just share with us, um, in all of your research as you were writing this book, what were the things that, that to you seemed like the most important or the most surprising and helpful things that you learned that maybe you could share with our audience? Yeah, sure. There were a few. Um, I, I think the thing that hit me earliest on is sort of an aha moment was uh, when it came to the research on willpower. So going back about 20 or 30 years, researchers discovered something really interesting about willpower, and that is that it is finite. It's limited. And they did these experiments where they'd have people work on puzzles, and one group would have to resist chocolate chip cookies before working on the puzzle, and one group would not have to do that. And the group that had to resist the chocolate chip cookies, they'd go into the puzzle and not last very long at all. And the reason was, they, they theorized, is that because they depleted their willpower beforehand, when they went to work on the puzzle, they just didn't have enough willpower left. Now, that might seem kind of obvious to us today, and as a Christian, I think that, that certainly jibes with what we read in Scripture, because we know we're these finite, fallible creatures, right, that are prone towards sin, that, you know, as Jesus said, the spirit is willing, but the body is weak, <laughs> right? And so that's not a surprise to us, but it did help me kind of think about my life in new ways. So when I've had a really difficult day at work, say, and my willpower is depleted, I come home and I'm more likely to maybe snap at my kids because that willpower is dangerously low. And that's not an excuse, right, for being a jerk to your family or something. But what it enables you to do is to understand, hey, listen, after I've you know been exerting a lot of effort, that depletes willpower or resisting temptation, then I'm in a very vulnerable state. I remember talking to a group of pastors recently, and one of them talked about how he was part of this accountability group of other church leaders, and all of the guys admitted that 
often when they fell prey to lust was right after they had been doing some big ministry, like speaking at a conference or doing something like that. And it was such a mystery to them. And obviously there's a spiritual component to this, but also there's a natural one that when you're doing something really difficult, you're performing, you're exerting a lot of willpower. And then after that, that's when you are very susceptible to falling prey to temptation. So important to be aware of that. And again, willpower is something that can grow as we do the hard thing, as we exercise self-control, our willpower can grow, but it is a limited and very finite resource. Mm. So you you said in your book, you did a really interesting thing as you're talking about how you'd come home from work and you'd be exhausted. So you actually adjusted your, your schedule during the day so that you would be doing lighter, easier tasks in the afternoon, and that would save up enough willpower so when you got home. So, so how does that work? Doing heavier tasks drains your willpower, but does it get restored as you do easier tasks? Yes, and as you get rest, right, and and do things that just don't take a lot of um, effort. And there are a few things that can drain your willpower. It's doing difficult things, and I don't mean physically. Actually, physically is probably good, but mentally, uh, decision-making does it. Multitasking, which is a terrible idea anyway, <laughs> drains your willpower. Uh, interpersonal conflict is a big one. Lack of sleep is another one. So those are all things to be aware of. Yeah, and I realize that, and the thing that is hardest for me, honestly, is probably writing, you know, especially kind of original uh, material. And I was trying to do it at like five o'clock every day when I was done with the work day. I'd open up the Word doc and go, okay, here we go. I'm going to write, write another chapter. And there was nothing. The tank was empty, right? And um, so then I realized I got to switch this up. I got to do this in the morning when I'm fresh, when I've got a little bit of willpower left or on the weekends or something because I just didn't have anything left. And that's, yeah, something to be aware of. I think too often I would put off my time with God in prayer and, and Bible reading till later in the day. And maybe other people can identify with this. You put it off and then it never comes, right? Because the day gets busy and your willpower is low. And so the earlier you can do that in the day, the better. The other thing is habits like that, like prayer, like Bible reading, or even like exercise are what they call keystone habits. And that is they're not only good in and of themselves, but they actually make you more self-disciplined in all areas of your life. So they know, for instance, if you exercise in the day, you're going to eat better that day. You're going to be more productive in your work. And so if you can kind of institute some of those rituals and habits in your life, it actually makes things easier for you in other areas as well. Mm. At, at another point in your book, just before you started talking about willpower, uh, you were using this phrase, and I don't know if, if, if maybe you coined this phrase or you heard it from somebody, but I guess it was in, you were talking about Sarah Schnitker, who's the professor of psychology at Baylor University. Mm-hmm. And, and she was talking about how secular efforts to build, here, let me, let me read the quote here. Secular efforts to build self-control have been ineffective because they don't have the spiritual telos or the purpose. When people are pursuing sanctified goals, they pursue them differently. So could you define for us what a sanctified goal is and, and why that's different and it's, it's easier to pursue them? Yes, sure. And I cannot take credit for that. Okay. Uh, that, that's a, uh, that was coined by researchers, actually secular researchers, not even uh, Sarah. And yeah, it refers to this phenomenon that if you are, say you have a goal, right? And say it could be even something rather mundane, like I want to lose 20 pounds, okay? If you would pursue that goal because say, oh, I want to fit into my jeans better, or I want to look, look better in the mirror, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you instead imbue that goal with spiritual reasons for attaining it. So for a Christian, say you say, well, you know what? My body's the temple of the Holy Spirit. 
Uh, I want to treat it well. I want more energy to pursue the calling that God has placed on my life. So if you kind of conceive of it in those terms, the research, this is not the Bible, the research has shown that you will have greater success at attaining those goals if they have spiritual significance. And so, I mean, as Christians, we should do that anyway, but it's also just more effective. And what researchers um, uh, call that is sanctified goals, and that when you do that, it's just very smart. So they're funny, you know, I, I read one article by an atheist in the New York Times that talks about, should I start going to church and praying and <laughs> if I want to meet my New Year's resolutions, <laughs> right? And, and the one researcher kind of disappointed him by saying, no, you actually have to believe it. You know, I mean, it's <laughs> not like you can just, you know, make believe. But, yeah, for people that are believers and, and see their goals, even the mundane ones, in the light of spiritual truth and, and ultimate purposes, you'll have greater success at reaching those goals. And, and those sanctified goals, like, like you, can you sanctify every goal? Like you were talking about just fitting into your genes. Like, <laughs> like you just, do you think about every goal as putting it in a spiritual context? And does that shape it all? Yeah, I, and I think you can. Now, the, the one caveat with that is that if it is a goal that is inherently selfish or uh, certainly evil, <laughs> you don't want to sanctify that goal. I'd say you can't sanctify it. Um, and that sounds silly, but often our goals are kind of tainted by very selfish motivations, right? Because if you go, oh, I don't know, I just want to make a ton of money so I can look better than everyone else and look down on others, I don't know, whatever it is, right? That, that's not a good goal in the first place. But, uh, and, and that's a, a crucial thing, I think, to mention for those of us who are followers of Jesus. You can't just use self-control as a tool to pursue whatever goal you want, Right. It has to be a goal that aligns with God's purposes for your life, with his truth, with the Bible's teachings. So that's huge, right? Because the last thing you'd want to do, I think this is the scariest thing to me, is to develop this like awesome self-discipline and use it to do things that ultimately don't benefit others, don't glorify God, and even ultimately hurt yourself. Because, of course, God knows what's best for us. So that, that's another crucial part of this. You want to make sure that your goals, A, align with God's purposes for your life, and then B, you want to really sanctify that goal and think of it in terms of what God wants for you, and you'll have greater success in reaching it. So yeah, it seems silly sometimes if it's like a you know lose 10 pounds goal, but if it's like you want a better marriage, man, you better put that in spiritual terms uh, because it's a spiritual sort of thing, and it'll be beneficial as well. So another chapter of your book that I thought was really, really helpful and very practical was your, was your chapter on habits and the power of habits. So could you tell us just a little bit about the power of habits and then how do we form and shape habits into our lives where we don't have them right now, like Bible reading in the morning? How do I get to two years down the road? I'm doing it daily without even thinking about it. Yeah. So habits are a huge part of this. And it relates to what I was saying about willpower. So you've got willpower, which is a finite resource. It runs out. You get weaker as you go. And this is where habits come in. And they're so crucial because essentially what a habit is is a routine. It's something you do automatically. And the genius of a habit is you're not expending willpower when you do it. So the guy that gets up and runs five miles every morning, you know, he's not slapping himself in the face and going, okay, that's it. I got to do it. I got to pull it together and get out there. No, it's a habit, right? If he's been doing it for any length of time, it's relatively simple and easy. Uh, and you get out there and do it. And so a habit is sort of a neurological phenomenon because what happens is, um, Researchers talk about the three parts of a habit. There's the cue, the thing that initiates the, the habit. There's the routine, that's the actual habit. 
And then there's a reward. There's something that kind of is gratifying that cements that habit in place. So, for instance, for the guy who goes running, maybe the, the cue is to see the running shoes by the door. Okay, you, you know, uh, put them on. The, the routine is the run, and the reward could be the endorphins that, that are released that make you kind of feel good. And there's differing opinions on how long it takes for a habit to form. Some people say 30 days, which is true of simple sort of routines. More complex ones, it's more like 66 days. But if you can persevere through that crucial window of habit formation, then it gets easier as you go. Yes, at first it's difficult to initiate a new habit. But if you can stick it out, then it becomes automatic, and then you're not depleting your willpower. And one thing I'd say when it comes to initiating, the second part of your question, okay, how do we initiate these habits? The best thing is to replace a bad habit with a new good one. So, you know, say, say you're a smoker, right? And so the cue is when you step outside your door, you get that urge for a cigarette, you smoke the cigarette, and the, the reward is the nicotine hitting your bloodstream. Well, maybe you decide, you know what? When I step outside in the morning, I'm not going to have that cigarette. I'm going to go for a run. And now it's a different, you've kind of hijacked the habit loop. You're using the same cue. You change the routine, and the reward now is not nicotine in your bloodstream, but endorphins. Right. And so you can replace. And the other thing I got to say is you got to start small. And this is so counterintuitive because often when we want to implement change, we go, OK, I'm going to change four things at once. I'm going to I'm going to get all these great habits of my spiritual life, my physical life, my relationships, whatever. And you've got that limited willpower, though. And so when you come to try to do that, you just decimate your willpower all at once. And then you don't make progress in any of those areas. So start small with one little habit. Uh, you know, if you want to run, you don't go for a three-mile run the first day. You walk around the block. The, the essential thing is that you're just doing it consistently and cementing in that habit loop, and then it has a greater opportunity to stick in your life. Mm. And that's the problem with, with New Year's resolutions that you talk about in your book, right? We we come to New Precisely. Year's, and, we, and we've got these five goals. It's cold turkey. I'm going to go to the gym for an hour every day, and it just <laughs> yeah. doesn't happen. Exactly. No, it's so true. And I've been there myself, you know, and I'm always mystified because I totally believe this is the year. This is it. I'm going to do it all. It's going to be amazing. Uh, and then it takes, it's not even weeks, yeah. it's like days yeah. before it's unraveled. And it's funny because gym, gyms know this. They sell a ton of memberships totally. and everyone's sure they're going to work out and then you don't want to cancel it and admit defeat. Um, but yeah, the so that's the problem with New Year's resolutions, that their resolutions, plural, you're far better just going with one thing. I know it, it's, it doesn't seem as exciting. But going with one smaller goal, and then once that's a habit, you can move on to another one. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Uh, so another thing that you were talking about in your book that I thought was really interesting because I hadn't I hadn't come here and, and realized this uh, was particular about social media and how it can distract us or or it's it's a I mean there's a war being waged against our our desire to be on it all the time. But you talked about dopamine and how um, I guess it was a study with rats and then and then realized it to be true with humans was that dopamine actually doesn't provide any pleasure. Um, it simply creates in us a, a greater hunger. Could you, f- could you flesh that out a little more? Because mm. I think that's something really significant that particularly uh, the n- newer generations are going to be wrestling with is all of this technology. It's going to vie for our attention and it's offering us something that really isn't even that pleasurable. Yeah, that that's a disturbing thing uh, because I think sometimes we don't like to think of ourselves certainly as <laughs> rats that are that are kind of getting this dopamine hit when we go online. But the truth is, we kind of are. I mean, and these platforms. And I'm not like a luddite, someone who's like, okay, all online engagement is evil. I am on I'm on Twitter way too much. Um, 
and, and so I know this as well as anyone, uh, these things are, des- are addictive by design. So they're designed to keep you engaged as long as possible. And if you don't take some measures to kind of curb their influence in your life, you're going to A, waste a lot of time and even form addictions. Uh, because, yeah, when you, when you get those likes on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, or that feedback, um, people liking your picture or your comment, you get a little hit of dopamine. And like you said, this is a surprising thing. People call dopamine the feel-good chemical. And in a sense, it is. It's associated with the pleasure center of your brain. But actually, it's not quite that. They've shown that it actually makes you anticipate pleasure. So when you walk by a bakery and you see that delicious piece of cake in the window, your brain is flooded with dopamine. Are you experiencing pleasure? Not exactly. You just want that cake really bad. Uh, And that's what it does. And so and if it's never satisfied, it's this constant kind of uh, heightened state of arousal that you're in without any sort of real satisfaction of, say, being with people in person, having those deep relationships with people. Uh, and so I think that's why sometimes, like, it's addictive, the online stuff, and then you come away for, from it and you don't feel satisfied. And yet you want to go back and, and, and spend more time online. So we got to be careful because not only um, does it waste time, but it also is changing our brains and our imaginations so we can't tolerate any boredom, right? We can't be alone with our thoughts. And as a Christian, that's really worrisome because to facilitate a relationship with God demands quieting your mind, praying, reading God's Word, which, let's face it, takes some concentration. It's a big, old book, right? And so if, you're, if you're, um, your attention span has been conditioned by Twitter and Instagram and online engagement, it's very hard to engage in those sort of spiritual disciplines and not to mention real life community which is hard and challenging as well that's good yeah it's such a uh, an interesting thing that i read the anticipating pleasure that you get from dopamine and then i immediately thought well that's that's right on because you know i'll sit down i'll be on facebook for a good 10 minutes and you you get up and immediately you're like i I don't want to do anything right now but at the same time i don't really want to go back to facebook but at the same time i kind (laughs) of do like it's like i i know i'm not going to enjoy it but i it's just i want to do it (laughs) Such a strange uh, thing how that works. Um, so true. Yep. So, so I think you've given us some some really good things to think about, even just practically uh, working in our lives. So you talk about willpower and and how you know if we if we work this muscle, even work it in small ways, that we're going to build that muscle. Uh, you're talking about habits, uh, forming habits, starting slow, uh, even sanctified goals, right? Be- being able to put our goal in the light of something spiritual. But I wonder if, if you could, um, on this last question, help us understand. You, you had one of your chapters was talking about the balance of, of grace in, in self-control, the role of grace. Um, that, cause we can look at that and think, okay, yes, I know I should start developing my willpower. I know I should start developing habits, and I know I should do these things and do, do, do. And all of a sudden, my life becomes uh, works, and I think, whoa, 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 but, but grace, it's not about what I do. So, so how do we balance the role of grace, understanding that it's, it's not what I do that in any way merits my salvation. It's, it, God's gift of forgiveness washes all my failures. But how do I then pursue a life of self-control in light of that? Yeah. So I think when it comes to this topic, a lot of people see grace, that is God's unmerited favor uh, towards us, and self-control is almost opposites, Right where they're like, you know, and the thinking goes something like this. Okay, well, if God forgives me, which of course he does, uh, and not based on anything I've done, just out of his own uh, beautiful, free grace, 
Uh, then the thinking goes, well, why do I have to exercise self-control to resist sin, to live a life of holiness, <laughs> right? Because uh, there's always more forgiveness on right. tap. Right. Yeah, and, that's right. and, of course, uh, the Apostle Paul anticipates this sort of thinking in the Bible. He says, shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means, was his response, or heaven forbid, depending on your translation. And so, yeah, so right off the bat, he's saying, listen, don't think that just because we've received grace that we can just kind of go on sinning. We still need to strive for godliness. We still need to live a life of self-control. And here's the cool thing to me. I believe not only are they not opposites, but that grace actually fuels and empowers self-control. One study that I found really interesting is actually diet researchers who coined the, the phrase, and forgive this phrase, is, it, they called it the what the hell effect. And basically what this referred to was when they observed people on diets when these people had one small indiscretion, say they messed up and had one slice of pizza or a candy bar, what followed that indiscretion was often a full-on binge, right? Because they said, oh, well, who cares? You know, right. I, I'm done. I've ruined the diet anyway. Now I'm just going to go nuts. Um, and so and I think we've all been there. It's like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, no, yeah. I've, I've totally been there. Um, and they, they also talked about the opposite phenomenon that they called the fresh start effect. And the fresh start effect referred to this phenomenon where people, when they believe that they're starting new, when they have a blank slate, their behavior actually improves. And I think that applies not only just to diets, but to even the Christian life. Like when you, and as Christians, of course, we get the ultimate fresh start effect. God adopts us into his family. He forgives us entirely out of his own free grace. And then in response to that, we don't want to sin. We want to start fresh and new because we have been forgiven and we have that fresh start. So, for, and this is another thing. Some people think the key to improving your behavior or improving the other people around you's behavior is to kind of layer on the guilt, right? Make people feel bad about themselves, beat yourself up. But the truth is that doesn't work. That just causes you to like wallow in self-condemnation and actually engage in more destructive and sinful behavior. The key is to keep diving back to grace and going, I'm forgiven. God loves me. He's called me to a new life, and I'm going to walk in that. And in that way, I think grace actually empowers you to live a life of self-control. Mm. Wow, that's very good. Really, really good. Well, Drew, thanks so much for, for helping us dive into this subject of self-control. And, and even the thought that I was just having right now is, is you're sharing about the, the grace and the role, but what a gift it is to know, like you read the, the list of the fruit of the Spirit, that self-control is in that list, that God comes alongside us to develop this in us. So it's not just us laboring against ourselves and against our sin and our flesh, but God's, God's present with us in that laboring and blesses it. That's right. So, so thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and all your research and all your study. Uh, we've really appreciated having you on the show today. Well, thanks so much. It's been fun. Last thing I do want to say, yeah. too, to people is don't get discouraged. I know this, <laughs> this topic, I've been there myself, especially if you have a particularly um, uh, you know, bad habit or a besetting sin that just seems to have your number. I just want to encourage you, don't, don't get discouraged. You know, keep going back to God for his forgiveness and know that you can make progress, that you're not a slave to that sin. That's the beauty of the Spirit of God being alive and working in you, that he's calling you to be someone different, that he's still conforming people to the image of, of Jesus and be encouraged by that and, and remember that change really is possible. Yeah, that's great. Well, thanks so much, Drew. Thank you. It's been fun. 
episode has encouraged you and provided you with some things to think about, it's really good to be able to take the time to really look at what self-control means in the context of each of our lives and to be able to examine our goals and habits in a healthy environment. If you'd like to find out more about Drew, you can go to his website at drewdick.com or you can follow him on social media. And if you'd like to get a copy of his book, Your Future Self Will Thank You, Secrets to Self-Control from the Bible and Brain Science, it's available wherever books are sold. Next week, we're welcoming back Tony Ranke for a second time, and we're talking about his new book, Competing Spectacles, which is all about the things that compete for our attention in culture and in our world when we should be narrowing our focus on Jesus instead. I'm really looking forward to that episode, and I hope that you are too. If you want to listen to the first episode with Tony before next week, you can go online and take a listen to episode 203, Yes, Your Phone Has Changed You. This should be another really good episode, so I hope you join us again. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to hear more, subscribe on iTunes and Spotify or visit us online at indoubt.ca or indoubt.com. We're also on social media, so make sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. 